Episode 150, Tragic Endings. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a January 11th, 2012 broadcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about artifacts from Kansas history. During his lifetime, many considered General George Armstrong Custer both a braggart and inept, a fact proven by his complete failure at the 1876 Battle of Little Bighorn. So why did heroic images of Custer later appear in every bar and saloon in America? Join museum director Bob Keckeisen and me as we discuss a classic image of Custer's last stand. Often stationed in Kansas, Custer's dramatic death became a hot commodity. Find out about the neurotic artist that was the first to paint this indelible image of the American West. Then, we go behind the scenes with museum staff to examine some listener feedback that shed new light on a film camera from a quirky Kansas movie studio. Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we ring in the new year by connecting White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Father Time, a mythical Greek character with an obsession for hourglasses. But first, tragic endings. Good morning, Bob. Morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a lithographed image of Custer's last rally, and um, this is kind of one of my favorite pieces in our collection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it is a really dramatic and visually stunning print, mm-hmm. uh, which is a reproduction, actually, of a massive oil painting that was completed by Irish artist John Mulvaney in 1881. So he did this big painting, and then later there was small reproductions done mm-hmm. like this. And that's what we have in the collections, a lithograph of the original painting. Right. Yeah. And they'll find out how the original painting is really fascinating. Um, the print depicts George Armstrong Custer, uh, the infamous uh, General Custer, and the 7th Cavalry during the now infamous Battle of Little Bighorn. So... Um, uh, so, Bob, I want to focus on the print itself, but before we do that, we just need to set up the scene a little sure. bit. What was Custer's connection to Kansas? Because he did have a connection. Yeah. What was he doing in Montana in, on uh, June 26, 1876, because that's when the Battle of Little Bighorn took place? Mm-hmm. And what happened to the 7th Cavalry on that day? We'll start with his Kansas connection. Uh, George Custer and his wife Elizabeth, uh, who's kind of colloquially known as Libby, a lot mm-hmm. of people refer to her as Libby. Well, uh, George and Libby Custer lived in Kansas from 1866 to 1871. So right after the Civil War, mm-hmm. and he obviously served in the Civil War. Um, he was stationed in Kansas when the Seventh Cavalry was headquartered at Fort Riley, uh, and they were there to protect settlers and railroad workers on the Western Plains as, as the railroads built through Kansas. And they also spent time at both Forts Leavenworth and Fort Hayes. So we have uh, photographs of him at Fort Hayes and at Fort Riley. Well, they left Kansas when the 7th Cavalry got reassigned in 1871. And they went to Kentucky for a short time, but they really, both of them really, really missed the West. 
they so much liked the West and wanted to get back here that they, they did get reassigned in 1873 when they got orders to report to Fort Lincoln, which at that point was in the, the Dakota Territory. So he's up there, and three years later, in May of 1876, Custer and the 7th Cavalry rode out of Fort Lincoln to round up any American Indians who hadn't reported to reservations. They had negotiated, the government had negotiated this with the Indians and said, basically, you've got till January 31st, mm-hmm. 1876, to report where you're supposed to go. Well, obviously, many refused to do so and said, you know, heck with that. We're, we're not living on reservations. And the Lakota leader, Sitting Bull, had called for a large gathering of Lakota, Arapaho, and Northern Cheyenne Indians along the Little Bighorn River in Montana. So Custer's riding out with his troops to essentially find any Indians who haven't reported the reservations. And on June 25, 1876, Custer and the 7th Cavalry encountered Sitting Bull's encampment along the Little Bighorn, and he is in his entire command uh, were killed. Mm-hmm. The battle was quickly mythologized. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was um, everyone was fascinated with it, and among the first to really dramatize it was John Mulvaney. Mm-hmm. Who was Mulvaney? Well, Mulvaney was born in Ireland in 1844, and he became an artist. He immigrated to the United States in the mid 1850s, so you know, as as a young boy. Well, after he got here, uh, grew to adulthood, he served in the Civil War, and then he later traveled to Europe and studied art under several masters, uh, particularly some that were really well known for their battle scenes. So he returned to the, Mulvaney returned to the U.S. in the early 1870s, and he lived in Cincinnati and St. Louis and Chicago, kind of moved all over the place. Well, he was living in Kansas City in 1879 when he began to work on Custer's last rally and this was as you mentioned earlier the painting that is depicting the famous cavalryman's mm-hmm. last minutes on earth and to his credit in his quest for being really accurate he did research his subject on the actual battlefield he went out to little bighorn looked around um, so it took him uh, two years to complete the painting how accurate it is, uh, we can talk about that. <laughs> so the small print, what we see here, is it's not exactly what Mulvaney originally had in mind. What was Mulvaney's original concept? Because much like the painting itself, it's on a grand level. Yeah, he um, evidently thought that a painting, if you're going to paint this monumental episode, it really deserves a monumental scale. Mm-hmm. So the finished original work is 11 feet high and 20 feet wide. It's huge. It's enormous. It is huge. Custer is almost life-size in that thing. So what we have in our collection is a lithograph that was made from, uh, that. well, actually it was made from a smaller painting that he did later. Mm The massive painting, it kind of reminded me of a couple of things. There's the, there's the rather famous Civil War cyclorama at yeah. Gettysburg, uh-huh. and there is the Pantheon de la Guerre painting uh, of World War I in Kansas City. Yep. Yeah, the, and, the Liberty. Right, and they're both really big uh-huh. paintings of sort of, of war figures, but they both also had a, a sort of a public component to them. Uh-huh. The paintings would tour. Yeah. And, were the, was there a public aspect to Custer's last rally? Oh, definitely. Uh, Mulvaney toured his painting throughout the country until at least 1890, as near as we can tell, uh, just wowing, paying audiences all over the country. Um, took it to a lot of different U.S. cities. People would queue up and pay money to come see this thing. And uh, uh, at the time, a newspaper commentator in Boston, when he was showing it there, saluted his depiction as um, uh, the depiction of, quote, a grim, dismal melee. 
And even Walt Whitman, a famous poet, praised the work when he saw it. And he said it was, uh, he praised the work as being sketched, quote, from reality or the best that could be got of it. <laughs> Though he was among the first, Mulvaney was not the only painter to mythologize this battle. Other famous images have circulated for years with innovative titles like, as you said, Custer's Last Stand, The Custer Fight, Custer's Last Fight. A lot of these were often connected with beer brewing companies. Um, why, why, was this, why do you think this battle was so popular? Well, the battle, as you have mentioned, quickly took on you know, this mythological status. I think possibly first port, or the first point would be because you know, it's, it's a complete you know, annihilation of the 7th Cavalry. Mm-hmm. I mean, he loses five companies of men. So there's 200 and, over 260 men killed. So there's no survivors. Well, that has that sort of mythological aspect to it to begin with. But I think what really helped cement it in the public mind was it was reenacted in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Oh. So, so that you know had that um, element to it. it. It also has that kind of lost cause sense right. of mentality about it that you see associated with the American South in the Civil War and after the Civil War. And as I mentioned earlier, battles had long been a popular topic for painters. And Mulvaney is just one of the better-known depictions of the battle. Uh, others done by Edward Paxton. He's got a very famous one. Charles Russell, famous Western painter, has mm-hmm. a really interesting take on the Battle of Little Bighorn that he painted in 1903, which is all from the Native American point of view. Oh, interesting. You see all of these mounted uh, Indians, on, you know, well, obviously mounted, on their horseback, riding and shooting towards a center point, and you can just barely make out the 7th Cavalry in the center of the painting. The, the big figures are all the uh, American Indians. Uh, attacking. So Russell did one. Uh, the other one that most people are probably aware of is one done by an artist named Cassilli Adams. And Adams' print is perhaps best known because, as you mentioned, it was reproduced by the Anheuser-Busch Company yeah. and distributed to saloons all over the country. It was tough to walk into a saloon you know, from the 1890s probably up until, I would say, maybe the 1940s and not see a print of Custer's Last Rally. What happened to Mulvaney and what happened to the original painting? Because it's kind of, it's pretty fascinating and we actually have to deal with this uh, this issue from time to time. Well, yeah, and in order to, to get an even larger audience than touring this painting around like he did, Mulvaney uh, prepared his composition to be issued as a color lithograph. And to do this, he painted a smaller version of the work. So you're not making a lithograph off of this enormous 11 by 20 foot painting. He painted a smaller version and then a lithograph artist prepared a print off of that and that was mass produced and that's what we have in our collection mm-hmm. is a lithograph of that. Uh, the large original painting is in private hands. Mm-hmm. It has changed hands several times. Mulvaney continued his career as a painter but he really isn't remembered for anything but this painting. Right. This, was, this was sort of his, you know, uh, masterpiece, <laughs> to, to use an overused phrase. Uh, and it's said that this painting made him a small fortune. So he made a lot of money off this. Right, but that it didn't reflect. It wasn't reflected in the end. No, unfortunately, it? like I don't know if this is just true of a lot of artists or just a lot of people, but it, it's kind of the classic tale of somebody who makes a lot of money off an artwork or performance or something and then just squanders it. Uh, Became an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. uh, squandered his fortune, and ended up drowning himself in the East River in Mm -hmm. New York City in 1906. 
So a tragic end for yeah. a painter of tragic ends. Yeah. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for telling us about Custer's last rally. My pleasure. Let's read. The needle tears the hole. The old familiar sting. The U.S. 7th Cavalry Regiment was almost completely annihilated at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Though 211 soldiers died that day, there was one survivor from the 7th Cavalry, and he is the subject of today's Kanza Quiz. Can you name the only 7th Cavalry survivor from the Battle of Little Bighorn? Here's a clue. You can still see him today. I'll be back in a moment with the answer. In the year. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. Without a story, a museum artifact isn't very interesting. It's the memories and events associated with the artifact that make it matter. Today, we go behind the scenes with Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin and Registrar Nicola Zimmerman to discuss the fond childhood memories of one man who was sort of a child star in the film industry of Lawrence, Kansas. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello. And Nicola. Hi. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Centron Films. We are sad to announce that this is the last episode of the museum's Cool Things podcast. In tribute to that, we wanted to take a moment to review some correspondence from a listener that we thought would kind of um, create a nice end cap for the podcast. But first, we wanted to just give you a little recap of the podcast history. It began on April 26, 2006. Wow. Five and a half years ago. Yeah. With the episode Mickey Mouse Undies. Yeah. If you haven't heard that, you need to. Right. That's where I got you to talk about underwear. <laughs> yeah. In the collection. Yes. Um, and immediately in the first episode, we realized that um, we had a great potential for comedy and sarcasm um, to attract a new type of audience. So uh, for the next five years, uh, we employed that, employed those <laughs> techniques. And uh, our podcast has resulted in a total of over a million downloads. And we're very proud of that. And um, our listeners have become very dedicated and engaged. And they've given us a lot of feedback through surveys, uh, comments on iTunes and emails. And if there was one thing that we intended to do with the podcast, it was to connect new and sometimes distant people to Kansas history by using our artifacts and the stories of Kansas history. And we were successful. Like, we had listeners, uh, we heard from listeners in... Um Europe. I think a deployed naval officer uh -huh. in Italy. Yeah, we heard true. from people, I think, in Canada, several people mm -hmm. in Europe, mm -hmm. I guess, you know. Yeah. yeah. And people here who would say, I know nothing about Kansas. I have no connection to Kansas, but I love your podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And other people who are, who are sort of Kansas expatriates living abroad mm -hmm. or something would say, you know, I won't be able to go to Kansas for a long time, but this sort of, I guess, fills my Kansas addiction or something yeah. yeah and then there were of course our family members yes. yeah that was <laughs> nice well this feedback was always appreciated um but the best was the kind that showed us something new and added to the knowledge of kansas history so today we're going to look at an email from thomas hart who wrote to us um, about a motion picture camera used at Centron Studio in Lawrence, Kansas. If you'll remember, we recorded a podcast about a Centron 16mm film camera in September of 2008. Centron was a small film studio in Lawrence, Kansas that became worldwide uh, known worldwide for their high-quality production of industrial films 
But probably their best product was their mental hygiene film. I love that phrase, mental hygiene. We had a lot of fun with these mental hygienes. We watched a lot of them, and they are hilarious. Uh, they were instructional films shown in schools in order to provide social guidance on issues such as bullying, gossiping, and venereal disease. Yeah, the trifecta. Right. I think we. I think we all watched these back in the day. They were,、um, you know, slightly uncomfortable,、um, rigid. Films, but they were interesting. This particular studio in Lawrence was highly regarded in the community of Lawrence, and they were really well liked, primarily because they used a lot of Lawrence scenes、uh, for their films, and they involved a lot of local kids to be、uh, to be extras.、Um, and sometimes these locals were featured actors.、Um, we knew locals were used, but we never actually got to talk to any of them. On December twelfth, two thousand eleven, Thomas Hart read one of our on- online articles about the camera, and he emailed us to help just identify some pe- people that were、uh, in a in a Centron staff photo. But we were—I was curious about his source of this knowledge, so I asked him some details, and this is what he replied. This is what he had to say. My father, now deceased, worked at Centron from 1962 to 1970 as a cameraman. And as a kid, I spent a lot of time at the studio on shoots, and even in a few of their educational films in the later '60s, when I was about five or seven years old. I have fond memories of the studio from back then. Granted, I was very young at the time, but it left an impression on me. So the minute he mentioned that he was actually in a film, I was pretty blown away because I'd never spoken to a Centron player before. I've watched a lot of their movies now, and they look their characters seem so colorful and、uh, so Kansas kind of rigid in when they're portraying characters.、Um, so my research had indicated that the actors and the staff they were all a pretty tight bunch. So I wrote back asking more, and he replied with the following. I'll have to do a little research to find the actual titles of the films I was in. One was a safety film in which I get run over by a car for crossing the street against the light. In another film, I stole candy from a candy store after seeing my father lie to a traffic cop about speeding in order to get out of a ticket. <laughs> so this is what I love about these films: is kind of the absurdity that that you sort of the absurd absurdity that you end up being involved in.、Um, we also knew that Centron Films launched the careers of a few actors.、Um, most kind of just became superstars. Stars in the mental hygiene films, such as the Fork Tongue Frida, who was kind of the gossip queen, and this actress was in multiple films, and every one of them, she's just gossiping away. Vile. I, I want to meet her. She seems so fun. She's really. So if you get into watching these mental hygiene films, you start seeing some of the same actors appear over and over again. But there were a few actors that actually went on to bigger and better things,、um, or Centron caught them on the way down. Yes,、uh. either on the way down or Centron caught them on the way up.、Uh, but Mr. Hart, he made us aware of a few that I really didn't know about had that I didn't know that had been involved in the Centron films.、Yeah. Mr. Hart wrote, "I remember some of the big studio shoots Centron did for clients like Texaco. One shoot had a big musical number with Anita Bryant." And I'm sure a, a, 
our listeners of a certain age will remember Anita Bryant. She was an Oklahoman who almost won Miss America, and she became a big pop music star. But um, she was probably best known in the 70s for her anti-homosexual crusade. Yeah. And she was also the spokeswoman for the Florida Citrus Growers. So she got a lot of play. Um if you were around in the 70s, you'd remember her. There's a famous scene of her like uh, spouting off some anti-homosexual sentiment, and she gets a pie in the face yeah, yeah. In, a, in a new studio, and it's it's pretty interesting to watch. She, yeah, it really tanked her popularity. <laughs> um, and Mr. Hart also wrote, Another shoot that I recall, I must have been about five or six years old at the time, featured Ed Ames. Well, you know, if you grew up in the 60s watching the TV series Daniel Boone, you remember Ed Ames um, playing the role of Mingo, the Native American. Uh, Ed Ames was not no. Jewish. Yeah. He was like Central <laughs> European. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, no, that was kind of the Hollywood tradition back then. If you looked ethnic, you could, you could play any ethnic role. Um, and he was one of the Ames brothers. They um, they were a well-known singing group at the time. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. Well, Mr. Hart then went on to tell us about a few heavy hitters at right. the studio. So these were the big-time success stories yeah, related names to Central. that everyone will know. Uh, they had one shoot with John Carradine, um, who is known as an actor in The Grapes of Wrath and Stagecoach. And he is the father of an acting dynasty. The Carradine name is pretty well-known. Um, where he insisted to be paid in cash, so Centron did. Then, a week later, Carradine's agent was calling, wanting to know why his client hadn't been paid. Hmm. Turned out, Carradine had a habit of asking to be paid in cash, thus avoiding paying his agent's fee, very smart, mm-hmm. and heading off to Vegas. <laughs> they also used a few future stars like Don Johnson, whom I recall my dad saying was really, really intent on becoming a star and a little, quote, twitchy to work with because he was so intense. I love twitchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Rebecca, Don Johnson was from, he lived in Wichita for he a while. Was, yeah. And you you lived around the Wichita area. Did yes. you ever meet Don Johnson back no, in the day? I, no. no? We, I'm sure we did not move in the same circles. <laughs> <laughs> he he did go to high school in Wichita, but I, I think he left for L.A. right afterwards. And he, or soon afterwards. And uh-huh. he said, you know, there were a lot of good people in the Midwest, but you just couldn't make a living acting here. So you had to go to the coast. And yeah. he thought that was really a shame. Yeah. Blair, um, our other curator, said that, um, he thought that Don Johnson was probably part of Centron when he was in school at KU because he was part of the theater program, and that right. was, you know, like maybe a place he could get a little more experience, maybe a little pay. Right, like your standard actor. He was in college for probably one or two semesters. <laughs> yeah, and then he was like, I'm out of here. Yeah. Got to hit Hollywood. So I'm just really impressed with, with all the knowledge that this guy had of Centron. So thank you, Mr. Hart, for sharing with us your memories of Centron. Your stories add a powerful human element to history. And thank you to all of our podcast listeners for being a part of this project for the past five years. We will really miss you. All right. Thanks, ladies. I wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair. I'm Merle Riedel with the answer to today's Kanza quiz. We asked you to name the sole survivor from the 7th Cavalry at the Battle of Little Bighorn. The answer is Comanche, a U.S. cavalry horse. Enlisted in 1868, Comanche was soon stationed at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The horse belonged to Lieutenant Miles Kehoe. He gave him the name Comanche after the horse's brave conduct while fighting Comanche Indians in Kansas. Two days after the Battle of Little Bighorn, Comanche was found wounded but alive. 
After retirement, he was brought to Fort Riley, Kansas, where in 1890, he died. Today, you can see the stuffed Comanche on display at the University of Kansas Natural History Museum. And you could have it all My empire of dirt And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Exhibits Director Chris Prouty. Hello. And Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Today, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to Father Time, a mythical figure associated with New Year's. Chris, you want to give us a little background on old Pa Time? I do. Father Time is a mythical figure that often appears around New Year's Eve. He's depicted as a tall, skinny, elderly man with a long, white beard. Mm -hmm. Usually dressed in flowing robes, Father Time is typically seen carrying a scythe and an hourglass with a baby nearby. Most people believe he is the evolution of Kronos, a Greek philosopher-type god of time. The scythe is a reference to the Grim Reaper, a traditional icon of human mortality. This is a fun guy. It is a fun guy. Well, New Year's Eve is joyful, right? (laughs) (laughs) But what about that baby? Throughout the 20th century, Father Time became a popular subject of political cartoonists who liked to draw Father Time bringing in the new year or a newborn baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And often, that baby ages quickly. Often though. the baby <laughs> the baby is depicted wearing a top hat yeah. and I don't and know, diapers. drinking champagne yeah. or I don't know. And that little sash with the yep. year yeah. number on it. Yeah. yeah. I don't you know, I don't know that Father Time is really a character. I, you really don't ever hear about him other than because somebody wants to draw something on a in a political or a cartoon on New Year's. Mm-hmm. That's about the only time he gets drug out. Yeah, poor guy. Weird. Maybe All it's right. because he's carrying around a scythe and an hourglass. And, and a baby. baby. And a baby. <laughs> like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks, Chris. Now to the game. As a contestant, Chris, you will hear two, that's right, two, chains of connection, chains of connection between William Alloway and Father Time. You must pick the true six degrees of William Allen White from the faults. Nikayla, why don't you go first? Okay. Father Time was a character in Thomas Hardy's novel, Jude the Obscure. Um, Hardy- That's a rather obscure novel. <laughs> yeah, it is. Hardy is probably better known for his novel, Tess of the D'Urberville. Well, Thomas yeah. Hardy. I'm that's still not known. Tess. You, should, you know Tess. You know. Sure, sure. <laughs> of the Derby. <laughs> Watch more PBS, okay? <laughs> Thomas Hardy met William Allen White at a luncheon held by White's publisher, Macmillan, in 1909. White found Hardy charming and wrote of him in his autobiography, I remember nothing that he said at the luncheon, for I did not write it down, but I do remember that what he said was impressive and that the way he said it was delightful. So wow, that's pretty pretty quick connection. Awfully convenient. Okay. That's awfully convenient. Um, okay, now mine. Uh, never, never really a popular folk hero like Santa. Father Time did apparently make a respectable villain. In 2006, DC Comics created the fictional character Father Time, who is the leader of a band of right-wing anti-government <laughs> mutants that assassinated a presidential candidate. In in 1932, while working for Detective Comics, which eventually became DC, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster created another, perhaps more more well-known comic book character, Superman. Raised in Kansas, Superman, or Clark Kent, would eventually find employment as a journalist. 
working for a hard-nosed newspaper reporter named Perry White. Oh, Lord. In his 1992 memoir, Siegel indicated that indeed Perry White was at least influenced by William Allen White. Siegel wrote, I needed a name for an editor at the Daily Planet. William Allen White was the only editor Joe and I even knew the name of. I guess that's saying something when you live in Cleveland and you know the name of an editor in Kansas. Can I give you a clue here? I'd love one. never tells the truth about these things. And all the times we've done this, I think maybe once his answer was the legitimate one. Mm-hmm. You know what? I, I was really kind of stumped, and, and since I blew it <laughs> that you I was, I was, I was. I had to do a little bit of research, and I still think that yours is a bit of a stretch. Um, although I, I know that Father Time did exist in the DC comics. Oh, Superman um, did exist in DC? No, no, no. Oh, no, the character. Father Time. Yes, yes, yeah. 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 Um, but I'm still going to have to go just because I think it's a bit of a stretch. And maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know I'm going to go with Nikayla just because I liked you, The Obscure. <laughs> I do. It's a very depressing film. Oh my God. Yeah. Take well, it. You're right. Well, you are right. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Mine's, mine's made up. As usual. I still think it's fun to, get, to think uh, that Perry. this right. So I think yeah. it's fun to think that Perry White is named after William Allen White. <laughs> me. All right. Yep. Good job. It worked for me. All well, right. And with that, I am sad to say we come to the end of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Of course, the concept was based on the 1994 board game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, which I guess now makes a connection to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> right. Done. <laughs> and we did it because we noticed every time we had a conversation about William Allen White, you could find a way to connect him to someone famous. And it was really nice because he had an autobiography along with several other writings in which it was documented that he met these people. That's right, yeah. So, yeah. And in total, we have successfully connected William Allen White to 127 individuals, places, events, or buildings. And the subjects have included things like The Shining, Aaron Burr, The Berg Dubai Tower, Anderson Cooper, The Mayflower, and The Lithium-Ion Battery, just to name a few. It's pretty impressive. And now yeah. do The Obscure. Do The Obscure. obscure. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. It's Very cool. It's been incredibly fun, and we uh, like to think that we have a raised uh, we have raised awareness about William Allen White. Uh, we think he's an American hero and a small town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas. That concludes episode one hundred and fifty. Tragic ending. If you would like to see the print of Custer's last rally. Go to kansasmemory.org, our online digital repository, or visit our website, kshs.org. This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. Real people, real stories.